Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Elizabeth Abel on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Signs of the Times, The Visual Politics of Jim Crow. I'm just slightly too young to have ever seen a colored-only or white-only sign, but I know about them through photographs. They are very frequently reproduced in books, particularly books about segregation and desegregation. Interestingly enough, I've never read anything scholarly about them, and I really didn't know much about them except that there were photographs. The great virtue of Elizabeth Abel's book is she brings a lot of them together and she contextualizes them. She discusses the way in which they were used to demark space and race together. And in that sense, her book is a great contribution to the understanding of the way in which Americans experienced race, particularly in the South, in the era of Jim Crow. Not to mention the fact that the photographs themselves are often very arresting and the stories of The people that took them are often very interesting. So the book offers a number of different things to students of history and African-American studies and photography and even literary criticism. I really enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed talking to Elizabeth today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Without further ado, here it is. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, and you? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Today we're talking with Elizabeth Abel about her book, Signs of the Times, the Visual Politics of Jim Crow. As I told Elizabeth in the pre-interview, one of the fans of New Books in History wrote me and said, there's this terrific book out about segregation signs. I guess that's what you'd call them. And uh, after an email correspondence with that person, I, I got in touch with Elizabeth, and she quickly agreed to do the interview, and I got the book, and I read it, and I have to say it's a very gratifying and very interesting. I'm just slightly too young to have ever seen any of these things in action. I, of course, have seen pictures of them. They figure very prominently in, um, I guess I would call it the discourse or the, uh, the narrative of segregation and anti-segregation. Um, and as Elizabeth points out, very interestingly, they have a kind of second and even third life uh, where they are used as uh, symbols to be manipulated, uh, I guess manipulated maybe too strong, just used uh, for one purpose or another. And she traces the the history of them just from the very beginning to these moments today when they are being um, deployed again in entirely new context. So it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting project that tries to describe the kind of migration and meaning of, of these re- really interesting and I, I must say sort of disturbing signs. That's just between you and me, Elizabeth. I'm sure you feel the same thing. Uh, before we get going on the book, why don't you uh, do me the favor of saying a few words about yourself? Sure. Uh, Perhaps the first thing I should say is that I'm not actually an historian. (laughs) I came to this project uh, somewhat circuitously. My background, actually my PhD is in comparative literature, and I've been teaching in English departments all my Uh, life. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, hold on on just one second. Um, You can't, can you uh, move the microphone just a little bit away from your mouth? Um. Okay. Because we're getting what's called plosives. You know what the right plosives. Remember linguistics? I, I think that's what they're sort called. Sort of. Yeah, plosives. So in other words, it's banging against the microphone. But if you move it away from your mouth a little bit or kind of up toward your nose, it won't do that. Yeah, that's what I've just done. That's, that's does, perfect does right Does this there. sound better? Oh, yeah, it sounds much better. Yeah, so we're not okay. getting those anymore. So just go ahead and start from the uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a historian. Okay. But we're going to make you a historian anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> 
perhaps the first thing I should say about myself is that I'm not actually an historian, and I came to this project in a somewhat circuitous fashion. Uh, I'm actually a professor of English, and I have a degree in comparative literature, and have taught ever since then in departments of English, not of history. So I have some anxieties about uh, presenting myself as, as an historian, or perhaps I should say, rather than presenting myself as an historian, I would like to think of myself as a, a visitor or a migrant to the field of historical and cultural studies. How about a, how about a welcome guest? Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> that, that's a much better image. I like that. Um, and I guess I, I hope what my different training and background might be able to bring to the field is a, a distinctive focus on the language of Jim Crow. And I mean by that both a, a verbal language, of course, the language of the signs themselves, and a visual language, how the signs got translated into images by the photographic cores and, and, and practices that have preserved them uh, and brought them to our attention because the signs themselves have fortunately almost entirely vanished um, and we know of them through the intervention of the camera mm -hmm. that has made them visible uh, to us today. Mm -hmm. uh, what has been written on these signs before? Is there a, a literature on them? You know, there is so little. That is really how I came to this project, uh, inadvertently almost, by finding a particular photograph that captured my attention and trying to research what had been written about the signs and the representations of the signs and discovering to my real surprise that virtually nothing has been. They, they tend to crop up, mentions of the sign crop up in narratives, um, both autobiographical and fictional narratives of growing up in the South. And they tend to feature in symbolic moments of mm -hmm. childhood when a, a young person encounters the sign for the first time as an experience of trauma mm -hmm. and shock and has it explained typically by a parent who unfolds the meaning of of the system of Jim, Jim Crow and then tries to steer the young person away from the experience of, of future encounters. Mm -hmm. So um, there are these episodic references, but no, or virtually no attempt to um, develop an understanding of a system of representation in which these signs were key. Mm -hmm. And that then became, I said, I, I really never intended to do this, but it became a kind of almost obsession of mine to try to piece these little fragmentary images and narratives together into a more comprehensive understanding of how this system worked, mm -hmm. uh, both uh, during, during the reign of Jim Crow itself and subsequently you know, for all of us who have some knowledge of it as mediated these references. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, li I like what you said about the current disposition of the discourse of the signs being sort of trapped in this uh, trope, and it really is. I mean, whenever you hear about them, it's always in some sort of cautionary way, is that somebody mm -hmm. comes upon them, and, you know, they're, they are, um, they're a little bit like you see the swastika. You know, yes. it's always cautionary. It's always something that um, is, is, is put in a strongly evaluative and negative light. Um, and it is stereotyped in that way today. Um, you mentioned the, the catalog of photographs and signs. Uh, that seems to me to present a real difficulty. How did you 
mass photographs of these things. Yeah. Is there an archive of them, or there does somebody is no, collect them? Or? No. I mean, there are many archives scattered, really, across the country. Um, but again, to my astonishment, I discovered there has never been an attempt to collect these in a single comprehensive archive that would constitute, uh, you know, an enduring uh, representation of the way. Jim Crow operated. So one of my goals in this project was to, in effect, constitute that mm -hmm. archive, not in, in physical space, since the, the, both the signs and the images remain scattered, but you know, between the covers of a book where people could see the, uh, both the historical and geographic distribution of, mm -hmm. of this, this system. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess I, I would hope uh, at some point perhaps to be able to do an exhibit uh, that, of, of the materials that came out of this project in one space uh, in which people could actually walk through and, um, and see firsthand how these things look. Or perhaps as a web event, that, that might be another is that, way. Is that, in, is that in the works? It is not yet in the, in the works, but it is it's sort of something I anticipate doing at some point. I, wouldn't that be fantastic? What yeah. fun to work on that. I mean, fun, I guess maybe I shouldn't use that word, but it does sound like a very interesting project. Um, we, don't, we book writers don't get to do that kind of stuff very much. Right, yeah, but right. I would, and I, would, I envy you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Jim Crow. Um, what is Jim Crow, and uh, when did it start? You know, it's, even the term itself has a certain enigmatic uh, quality to it. The name Jim Crow derived from a, a song and dance routine that was legendarily performed in the early 1830s uh, and became a kind of minstrelsy act. And the, the um, refrain that is well known is, every time I turn around, I jump Jim Crow. That term, for reasons that aren't fully documented, uh, came to be the generic name for the system of segregation. Uh, and so, and that system itself, of course, was um, variegated and historically and geographically uneven. So there's no single starting point. But um, it gained momentum uh, after the end of Reconstruction, when the federal troops withdrew from the South and Local Southerners were eager to, white Southerners, of course, were equal, eager to implement a system that would reassure them that hierarchical relations between African Americans and, and whites were maintained in a, a, an array of public spaces in which something more like equality had been um, enforced through the imposition of federal uh, troops during the period of Reconstruction. So signage began to crop up um, unevenly and, and variously in the 1880s and 90s. Um, the first photograph that I was able to locate of a sign was actually in 1900, but, but there are references to signs prior to that. And then uh, spread um, in, in diverse forms, and uh, by forms I mean both material forms. They were, they were written on uh, cardboard and painted on walls and stamped on metal and um, painted in windows. I mean, they, extremely diverse and also linguistic forms. Very little regulation about what the signs needed to say or could say or how big they should be or where they should be. So these, these were remarkably diverse 
uh, both in their um, material features and linguistic features and geographically. They were not only in the South and certainly not only in the Deep South. Photographs document them up and down both coasts of the United States um, and, of course, across the nation. Uh, and so they, ga they gained momentum, as I said, sort of after Reconstruction and in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, when they became quite um, insistent and virulent and uh, pervasive. Um, and they weren't dismantled. Well, uh, they weren't dismantled until uh, the last photograph that I found was from 1980. Wow. But I've since heard references to signs that linger, uh, um, especially in rural environments. And there may still be some, uh, certainly in my research, swings through the South. I didn't see the signs themselves, but I did see traces of them. So those could be... Um, little uh, marks, holes in uh, surfaces such as marble, where they're very hard to fill in over drinking fountains. You could see four symmetrical holes. And I, I remember this specifically in um, public building. I think it was the city hall in Birmingham, Alabama, where, of course, there's, there's no segregated fountains, but, but uh, there are what I'm quite sure are the holes where the signs for the segregated fountains had been or um, strange um, locations of restrooms, which seem to be remnants of previously segregated restrooms. Or one, one example that was particularly intriguing to me was, uh, this was a station in Georgia. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the town, and I, it's not coming back to me offhand, but a, a, a sort of minor uh, city in, in Georgia, where the train station uh, had stairs going down symmetrically on both two sides into a waiting room, and the words safety first were painted over the staircase. I think that seems like an unnecessary piece of information. Probably it's covering over where the white and colored signs had been to the two stairways into two sides of the waiting rooms. So the traces remain, and um, the signs themselves probably can be found on occasion in parts of the South. Yeah, the, the parallel with um, contemporary German architecture is interesting because uh, I know of websites where people go around um, – and look at monumental German buildings uh, for where these swastikas used to be, uh -huh. and, and they, you know, people will say, you know, this this building, that large uh, space up there, is where, uh, you know, the German Imperial Eagle was bearing a swastika, uh -huh. that kind of thing. So it's a similar uh, sort of thing. Uh, historians like to talk about things coming from above and below, above being the state and below being mm -hmm. a kind of a kind of um, a very popular. Uh, I want to call it vernacular sort of movement. Mm -hmm. um, my impression is, is that these things were more vernacular than they yes. were. Yes. Yes. I mean, there was legislation uh, coming from above that said these facilities must be segregated. So that was the sort of the, the voice of the law, if you like, came from above. But the implementation came from below, um, from a wide range of places and people, so civic organizations or um, businesses and individuals, and this is the most uh, vernacular version of them, would just write sort of mm. racial signs and messages on their homes or small you know, mom and pop stores or their, their, in rural areas uh, on outdoor toilets. Somebody, you know, the owner would put white, paint white only on it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, 
that's really what made it most interesting to me was the science became an occasion for almost an incentive for the the, the option to produce the signage became a, an occasion an incentive for the articulation of racist yeah. sentiments that um became very legible mm -hmm. and and compelling to think about as popular expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but one of the things you point out is that the signs don't only regulate, they also express right. an opinion about uh, races. And you can see that some of the signs are placed in such a way, that, this is hard to do on the radio, obviously, but some of the signs are placed in such a way that they don't seem to separate anything. <laughs> they, they, simply, <laughs> they simply say no blacks, and there's not, not like any place to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just no blacks. Right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the, um, the language of the signs, which, which changes. How, what words do they use to demark um, the, the so-called races? Yeah. Um, one trajectory takes place within the, the category for African-Americans, um, and of course they're not called African-Americans. Um, one of the things that interested me was the language or the, or the variation between the use of the word colored and the use of the word Negro. Um, those were the two dominant terms. Colored being the primary one because it was more inclusive. It was more capacious. It could be understood to include all sorts of mixed races and often ambiguously other races. I mean, there's a whole... Um, set of discussions about where Asian Americans in the South, who were a sizable minority population, where they fit between the white and colored categories. So using the term colored could plausibly include them in the way the word Negro could not. Similarly for um, Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there was uh, a third category in certain areas for Indians or no Indians. Um, um, often, most often not in the binary system, white and colored apply. So with the colored, with the term colored, the preface to it would, would typically be for colored um, as opposed to for white, and typically it would not it would not be used as an adjective modifying the word people. So we would have for white people and for colored in a obviously asymmetrical construction. Um, but when... The, uh, the point of the sign was to bar African-Americans um, since the word no uh, would be the introduction to the sign. What typically followed was Negroes, no Negroes, because uh, colored in English doesn't function as a noun the way it was used, say, in South Africa, no coloreds. Uh, so it would become four colored or no Negroes or in the most abusive um, variations, you know, even more offensive racial epithets were used. Um, sometimes there would be uh, uh, a noun that followed um, custom in the early decades of Jim Crow that tended to be, uh, let's say, for colored, uh, for white and colored patrons or passengers or some specific designation that tended to drop out later as the system became more uh, automatic and, and simply the abbreviated for white for colored uh, what took over from that. One of the things that you point out in the book is that these signs um, not only reflect uh, the reality of segregation, but they also are telling people what to do who don't know what to do. Right. In, other words, in the early years, people didn't know exactly what was for whites and what was for blacks. And so in that sense, the signs were uh, – they were, they were really pedagogical. They were instructive. 
Yes, primarily for outsiders, because local people living within that community mm-hmm. tended to learn pretty fast yeah. where, they, where they could or couldn't go. Um, but outsiders didn't, and it varied enormously from community to community. So these signs typically show up at transportation mm-hmm. sites, especially railroad uh, stations where people would be coming from further distances, or bus stations as well. And there they really were pedagogical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was important uh, for African Americans as well as for whites traveling to, to be instructed because a, a wrong move could be very dangerous, yeah. very risky for them. Yeah, no, clearly. So uh, the book is about photographs of these things, not the things themselves, about a representation of them. Who, who was taking these photographs? Yeah, that's another very interesting set of questions for me. Mostly they were taken by northerners, that is by outsiders coming down uh, to in, in the initial large movement to document conditions, living conditions, working conditions in impoverished areas. So this was mostly the first large wave of photographers were sponsored by the FSA, the Farm Security Administration, a federal agency whose mission was to document poverty, really to legitimate uh, the investment of federal money in supporting, you know, hiring employment programs and support programs. So in the 1930s, uh, largely white, largely northern liberal photographers were coming down, really not expecting to find the explicit signage that they encountered. So the, the first body of photo, the first substantial body of photographs were taken by the, primarily by FSA photographers. And because they were outsiders traveling to the South, they tended to encounter these signs at, at public spaces, often transportation sites. Uh, and so the dominant image that they created and that has remained the dominant image uh, through our time has been fairly standardized signage, fairly sanitized signage produced for the eyes of outsiders. So largely these white and colored signs Mm -hmm. that have um, instantiated our Mm -hmm. cultural memory of this phenomenon. Um, And in many ways that's misleading. So the, because the, the signage was far more various than that. So local Southern photographers, people who grew up with the signs, and interestingly enough, both white and African-American Southerners have documented a far more various and, if the word is not misplaced, colorful uh, language of these signs that were individualized, localized, regionalized, etc., and that don't have this sort of generic quality of the uh, northern photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, then subsequent uh, to the, the 1930s into the early 40s, the next large wave of documentation happened with the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially in the late 50s, early, early through mid-60s, um, again, primarily northern uh, photographers coming down, joining forces sometimes with um, local protest mo- movements by African-American. Uh, obviously, they were, they were doing the protesting, but did less documentation of it um, for a whole range of reasons, um, primarily those involving safety uh, or those, those who did uh, photograph uh, actual 
sit-ins and protests, and even the signs independently of the protests, often had their cameras taken away from them or often fined or even imprisoned or beaten up for daring to, to take a stand. That was implied by having the camera with them. Uh, so the civil rights movement tended to venture out into more um, less le- less well trod territory and to capture signage that was more blatantly racist, um, less less guided by the pretense of the separate but equal fiction that the Plessy case had put in place. Um, and then after that, it just broadens to you know more. Again, more individuated cases of of people who, for one reason or another, Southerners and Northerners, black and white, wanted to capture an image of the signs before they totally vanished from the landscape. Mm-hmm. So, I, I find it very interesting that um, that most of the examples that we have are uh, these kind of obvious stereotyped ones that you find at train stations and such. Um, and your book does such a nice job of showing uh, really these vernacular signs that, that were obviously hand-painted and um, express something slightly different, I think, and something rougher. That's yes. my impression, yeah, something much rougher. Um, let's talk a little bit about where the signs appear. We've already talked about it for a moment. Um, you have an interesting chapter in the book about the intersection of the um, – racist signs with signs that demark gender. And here I'm speaking specifically of things like um, trying to recall drinking fountains and, 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 and restrooms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess I would like to lead into that by saying uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of the project for me came to be the way that space and race are mutually constitutive uh, through this whole system, and the way that the diverse social spaces, which will get us to the restrooms and and drinking fountains in a second, um, played an active role in defining uh, the system of race. So I think, again, one of the assumptions that we bring to the system is that space was basically empty or transparent or passive, and that these signs were superimposed on on this kind of evacuated space. Mm Uh, and and mapped it racially. And, of course, th- that is the case. But I think there was more pushback, there was more resistance uh, by virtue of the fact that space was also being delineated for many kinds of social functions mm-hmm. and purposes and uses. And those definitions um, and structures then intercepted the racial system and played an active role in diversifying it and shaping it. So that the drinking fact, and I, I think the, the, the signs at Um, transportation sites, the symmetrical white and colored signs, typically were over um, drinking fountains or got um, in our memory superimposed on the symmetrical juxtaposed structure of the two drinking fountains. Mm -hmm. And that has become our iconic image of Jim Crow, the white and colored fountains. Typically, of course, not equal, but visibly um, unequal, separate and unequal. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the parallel uh, binary system of the drinking fountains and the restroom doors um, fed easily into uh, the preconception of the binary system of Jim Crow as a separate and unequal system. Uh, and the, the, um, the gender signs, the restroom signs, had an additional influence in that they seemed both to legitimate as a 
um, preceding accepted normative structure, the sexual division of space, at least around functions like, like bathrooms. Uh, so they, they offered a kind of legitimacy to the racialized division, mm -hmm. and they also shaped that division because the, the unequal gender structure between masculine and feminine then was superimposed on and, and fed into the unequal racial system between white and colored, such that colored occupied the position of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And the ways that the photographers then consciously and unconsciously, I think, reiterated that assumption and, and uh, reinforced that assumption was by typically showing uh, an African-American man stooped at the color drinking, stooped to drink at the color drinking fountain uh, in a, a, a position of... I really see it as a kind of submission or objection mm -hmm. to the system, unwilling, of course, mm -hmm. but enforced upon him. So the feminized, emasculated black man became the iconic figure of the effects of Jim Crow mm -hmm. <clears throat> on, on masculinity, the detrimental effects on masculinity. And there are almost no photographs of African-American women drinking from the colored fountain because mm, that so would isn't that amazing? Yeah. That wouldn't have that added effect of saying, look at what the system is doing to men. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and conversely, there are very few white bodies of either male or female shown at the white drinking fountain because I think, again, perhaps unconsciously, the desire was both on the part of the, on the, part of the uh, largely white, largely liberal northern photographers to absent themselves or their own representatives uh, from the system and to want to claim the stance of the neutral observer who's simply documenting and not implicated in the system. And because to show white subjection to the system would undermine the, the, the desire to document its effects on African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that was the case for the uh, drinking fountains and, and restrooms and the ways in which they collaborated mm -hmm. in establishing the, the reigning um, set of assumptions about Jim Crow. Other social sites work quite differently, and perhaps the, the um, most dramatic uh, counterpoint to the drinking fountains were the vertically segregated movie theaters. Yeah, I want to talk about those. Yeah, those were so interesting because they go against the grain uh, in that it was the so-called colored balcony, the upper floors, that were where African-Americans were, were required to sit and the downstairs, uh, the sort of orchestra level where whites sat. And while on the one hand, those upstairs seats were inferior, you had to climb often up a very uncomfortable exterior, sometimes fire escape, sometimes just rickety wood stairs appended to the outside of the building, and you had a less good view of the screen, so they were inferior. But symbolically, they are superior, and practically, they had certain advantages uh, over the white audience downstairs, which was subjected to the surveillance of the African-Americans upstairs in an inversion of the typical system. Of, of surveillance that Jim Crow was intended to implement. Mm -hmm. So black viewers upstairs um, could watch uh, the white viewers downstairs, but could also engage in various practices such as throwing mm -hmm. popcorn, ice cubes, anything handy mm -hmm. down on the uh, downstairs viewers. And by virtue of being both 
in the dark and upstairs and behind the white audience, they really couldn't be caught and they really couldn't be uh, penalized for this behavior. So one of the pleasures of going to the movies for the African-American viewers was to finally get some kind of revenge uh, on the unsuspecting or at least vulnerable uh, viewers downstairs. Mm-hmm. And the photographs of, of this uh, hierarchical, vert- vertically segregated system were especially um, interesting and intriguing to me because they would show either the colored, a sign saying colored balcony or colored upstairs, but often the staircase itself going upstairs uh, to a a position above the screen, which would be represented symbolically in the photograph by the poster Mm -hmm. uh, for the film. So it captured the sense of a kind of uh, spectatorship from above of a screen that that whites would, would view from below and provided very um, fertile ground for interpretation as a result. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about a a kind of peculiar, at least to my mind, peculiar inequality or inconsistency, and that is that uh, a movie theater is a place of public accommodation, and and they were segregated in the sense that there were two parts of them. Um, I don't think that that's true of restaurants, is it? Were, Were there restaurants that had black sections and white sections, or were they so simply completely segregated. You uh, see what I'm saying? Yes, I do see what you're saying, and I would say all of the above. Um, sometimes, uh, often, uh, blacks were just excluded. Sometimes there was a takeout window in the rear, like in the kitchen uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the restaurant, where African Americans come and often had to bring their own container for food, um, and it would be handed to them uh, through the window, and they would take it home or take it elsewhere to eat. Um, sometimes they were just plain excluded. Uh, sometimes there were separate sections uh, curtained off or, or sometimes even walled off, um, a, a back room or a back area behind a curtain or a wall for African-Americans. But the uh, spatial allocation that I found most interesting was one that was quite uh, common during the Depression years in the, in the 1930s when it was advantageous to restaurant owners to accommodate as many customers as possible, given the hard times that everybody was facing. So the most common system devised uh, in the South during that time for inexpensive eating places was a kind of U-shaped lunch counter with a common area that the waitresses would occupy at the center, one wing, one one arm perhaps we would say, of the U uh, was for whites, one was for blacks, and some kind of device was suspended from the ceiling, um, sometimes a curtain, sometimes a board, that divided the racially segregated arms of this U-shaped structure from each other right at eye level so that the waitress could serve both sets of customers, but they would not be able to look at each other for the duration of the meal because that was, of course, a taboo. You couldn't look directly at a member of the blacks, couldn't look directly at whites, which otherwise they would be doing for an hour or so as they were seated at the counter. So this very bizarre structure of of a hanging device um, that food could be served under, but you couldn't see across 
was devised uh, during these years. And in fact, that is the, the image that led me to this project, was a photograph taken by Dorothea Lange in 1938 of a Mississippi lunch counter that shows an African-American couple. Um, you just see them sort of from the nose down. A little bit of, of their eyes are showing. Um, taken from the white side of this U-shaped counter by Lange, um, with a device hanging down, and, and the caption to the photograph says, this is the curtain that divided uh, service between blacks and whites. And it struck me as, I was so surprised by it, it struck me as such an unusual version of segregation, because like everyone else, I had grown up assuming it was the white and colored fountains fully visible, adjacent to each other. That was the that was the only structure, not just the dominant structure, but that was the reigning structure. And when I encountered this photograph, which raised all sorts of interesting questions about visual access in both directions, not just that African-Americans couldn't see you know, uh, across the Du Boisian veil um, that segregated them from whites, um, but that whites couldn't see across it either. And Lang's photograph seemed to suggest a great deal of frustration uh, as, at the system rather than just acceptance of it, of course, as a very liber famously liberal uh, photographer, progressive photographer, she was not only outraged by it, but frustrated by it because her mission was to see, to use her camera, to see and to document all kinds of living arrangements in the South, and she couldn't see across the racial division, couldn't see fully across it. Uh, so it was this concatenation of race and spectatorship and viewing uh, that led me to ask, so what, what else was going on in this system? How was, it, um, how was it structured? How was it inhabited? How was it documented? And I thought I was writing a footnote, and then I thought I was writing an essay, and 10 years later, it turned out there was a book there. Boy, ain't that, you know, ain't that always the way. Um, <laughs> How, how does that happen to us? There should yeah, be a book really. about that. Uh, the most uh, famous uh, sort of side of contention or debate about these things is, of course, uh, one that involves eating, and it is lunch counters. And you write very interestingly about that. They become uh, targets, really, um, yeah. very visible targets. Can you talk a little bit about the way you call them a theater? And they are very theatrical. I mean, people, everyone, I assume everyone has seen pictures of uh, these sit-ins and particularly... Uh, the people sitting in being uh, mocked or attacked or humiliated in some way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That is where the book ends, with the process of dismantling the signs through, uh, through the protest movement of the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And I chose to focus on the lunch counter sit-ins because they lent themselves to photography uh, so, so perfectly, unlike some of the more violent street demonstrations, for example. So I became interested not so much in the scenes of violence, although, of course, they took place and they are included, but in the more common experience, which was these heroic young students, primarily African-American students in the South, would go and they would sit for hour after hour, day after day, week after week, and nothing would happen. They wouldn't be served, uh, and there would be occasional uh, bloody attacks, but those were the exception rather than the rule. And most of the time they sat and they brought with them their school books and, and 
pens and papers, and they converted those lunch counters to study halls, effectively. And the photographers would show up expecting and, and I suspect, hoping for some action that would translate into a dramatic photograph that would get published in the newspaper. Uh, but mostly what they witnessed was inaction. And it was because those scenes of protracted stasis um, became a, a, a different kind of theater, not the more dramatic version um, that we know so well, but one of endurance um, and repetition and self-conscious posing. Um, these students were extremely aware of how they would be viewed, both by the locals who might come to jeer at them and by the photographers who typically stood behind them both figuratively and literally that has stood, were on their side, but often, most often, stood behind them. Uh, interestingly, rather than crossing over into where the absent waitresses uh, would be absent because they simply walked off the job rather than serving them. Um, and so they're very haunting images of often of the backs of uh, of these students. Sometimes photographers ask them to turn their turn around to face the cameras, which they did stoically and unsmilingly, um, and with a, with a sense of the weight of history being made. Uh, so that the the small things, uh, details that otherwise might go unnoticed, pens on the pens, and well, for example, one one little symbolic drama uh, that I tracked was the interplay between the pens the students brought to take notes and underline their books for the many hours they were sitting there, and the cigarettes that they were forbidden to smoke during the, the sittings. They were very strict rules about what they couldn't couldn't do that the organizers of the sit-ins uh, put out. So no talking, no laughing, uh, no smoking, dress codes. So cigarettes, which were brought by the hecklers, the white local hecklers, um, not only as part of the local culture of, of smoking, of course, at that time, but as weapons that could be used to burn uh, the backs or the necks or the arms uh, of the protesters. Um, so the, the, the fight between the kinds of pens and swords, the swords being the cigarettes at this time, the white cigarettes coating whiteness, the black pens coating blackness and coating the class uh, aspirations and intellectual goals. Uh, and practices of the student protesters who were in the process of moving up in the world into positions of middle class you know, professional authority as the white townies were using their cigarettes as the um, instrument of last resort to assert their racial privilege in the face of a, of a shifting economic situation. So those mini dramas became very interesting to me. The purses that the women would put on the counter that became their um, self-extension in space, uh, the, these contained purses, um, figures in, in my reading at least, of the, um, the presence of these women uh, sitting at the counter at great risk, and also of the fact that money was not being exchanged because they were not being served, and so they were also images of resistance to a system that would not include them um, on, on the terms with which they demanded to be included. So those, uh, the symbolic dramas became very important to me in, in that set of um, photographs of the sit-ins. 
One of the things I noted about those particular photographs, that is photographs of uh, students simply sitting at these counters uh, and really studying or doing something. I don't, I don't know exactly what they would. They were you know, usually posed in some ways. They're the only photographs in the book that really require some explanation because if I were to hand somebody that photo today, they would say, look, it's uh, a couple of black people studying at a counter. Yes. They, they wouldn't have any idea what, what it meant because it doesn't say – I mean, it doesn't say really anything to us without knowing the context. Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes when I've, I've given talks and I've shown slides of, of these images, uh, but you said a little while ago, well, well you all know about sit-ins. We may have, a, again, a, a couple of images of violent attacks in our mind, but this pervasive sense of sitting and the, the force, the power of that passive resistance, um, which we know about uh, through Gandhi and uh, other sites, but that the presence of these students who just just are sitting with their with their books um, is very powerful and does require explanation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I, I want to talk about two instances in which these uh, images have are being recirculated. Even today, I like to go to um, antique stores and stuff. Uh, and occasionally I see one of these signs or what purports to be one of these signs. And, and you talk about someone who uh, even manufactures them and sells them. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Well, many people manufacture oh, okay. and sell them. And <laughs> yeah. that is uh, one of the mysteries I couldn't fully crack. There's, there is a, a, a significant industry in the production of copies of these signs. Not always, in fact, often not acknowledged to be copies, um, but uh, promoted as originals uh, at a um, handsome sum. Um, but where exactly they're being made, with the one exception of the, the person that I think you have in mind, whom I'll get to in a second, yeah. um, the, the, the volume of these signs are largely believed to be um, produced in factories in Asia, which produce all sorts of memor cheap memorabilia and ship it to the U.S. But when I would ask, uh, I too was going to secondhand stores and antique stores and asking when I'd find one of these signs, usually the seller knew it was a copy. Um, I'd say, well, where did you get it? Or how do you get these? They said, I can't tell you. Um, and I think there was anxiety about possible prosecution over the circulation of racist materials um, and the market in them being legally regulated in ways that were being circumvented uh, in, in these cases. So uh, I don't know where um, – I, I could never quite crack the code of exactly who is making them and how these stores get access to them. But in one case, this is a store that no longer exists but did for about a decade uh, called Martha's Crib uh, in a suburb of Chicago. African-American store uh, serving an almost entirely African-American clientele um, with lots of uh, African-American memorabilia. But the signs are among the most popular of the items there. And I was lucky to be able to go there and talk with the owner of the store and ask her about why she makes these signs and who is buying them and why. And she explained that she was making them in response to popular demand uh, for some tangible relic of an era that is disappearing from memory pretty quickly. So these are being commissioned more or less indirectly, certainly purchased by a generation of African-Americans who grew up under Jim Crow 
and who want to pass on to their children and grandchildren some tangible relic of what it was like for them. So they are buying copies of these signs, hanging them at home. Sometimes, like she quotes the story of one client, uh, a customer, I guess I should say, who uh, wanted to buy a white-only sign to put over the, uh, the bathroom in his apartment so that his son would daily have the experience of going to the bathroom and facing this reminder that yeah. he wouldn't have been able to use it yeah. if yeah. he had lived when his father did. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. I've, I've, um, I, like I say, I've seen those signs at antique stores. I've never actually seen one in anyone's home. Uh, there are other artifacts, I won't mention them, that I have seen in other people's homes, uh, uh, but, but never one of these signs. The, the second, um, the second uh, area in which these are currently being redeployed is, uh, is it concerns... Um, uh, affirmative action, really, and, and you quote John Roberts, uh, who said something to the effect of the way to end discrimination based on race is to end discrimination based on race, or something like that. And, yes. And, and, yeah, um, <laughs> memorable and, quote. Yeah, it is a memorable <laughs> quote. And, uh, and, and then you, you have some pictures of students who have a, kind of paradoxically appropriated these signs. You show Sathergate, I think, and, yes. and white men only, as if someone's put that up there. Yeah. Uh, this is paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I, I had trouble wrapping my mind around it. Sorry about that phone call, by That's the way. That's okay. Don't worry about uh, yeah. it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, that particular demonstration was in response to um, the various California propositions uh, doing away with uh, affirmative action, both in admissions uh, processes and in hiring in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And they were posted both to, by students, the white men only signs, uh, both to um, signal the consequences of doing away with affirmative action, that we would revert, in fact, as a university to a white-only institution or something close to that, uh, if the intentional uh, decision to, um, to make sure that affirmative action was um, attended to in the admission processes disappeared. So it was said that this was a kind of cautionary of what we would return to, and also I think a reminder that this and this this myth <laughs> that uh, you know we no longer have racial discrimination because we don't have these explicit signs is mythic. That racial discrimination operates in many many ways, um, even if it's not written on the walls of our buildings anymore. And so by bringing the signs back into visibility is a way of saying you know we 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 assume them even when we don't see them, and so the shock value of being forced to read them, to see them, to walk onto them. The hope is, uh, certainly the, the intention is to wake people up to our um, less conscious um, operation all the time under the sign of Jim Crow, whether it's marked there or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Do you think that's effective at all? Do you think that people still remember that kind of thing and understand the reference? <sighs> I think that it certainly makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, it does, definitely. Uh, whatever um, degree of historical knowledge they have or not, they don't want to have to walk under a white men-only sign. Yeah, no, that, that's clear. I mean, it's, again, the deployment of the swastika uh, is a, or, or the word uh, Nazi or fascist is often yeah. is, is this sort of thing. It's a really it's a distancing mechanism. You use yeah. it to label somebody that you really don't like in a kind of broad way. Um, I, I did find it very interesting, though, because it, it does have this sort of paradox. Yeah. You know, we, we 
are trying to we're edging toward equality yet we're still kind of trapped in this symbolic universe and it's a it's a kind of a tough thing um let me uh thank you for being on the show uh, it's really been terrific talking to you it's a wonderful book and um i would like to uh ask you to answer if you can our traditional final question on new books in history and that is uh, Elizabeth, what are you working on now? <laughs> well, as I started up, I said, I'm really not an historian. And so um, I toyed with the idea of pursuing a project. I may still do it, but I, I, it's kind of moved onto the back burner. Uh, on the, um, tra- I, I was going to call it something like the traffic and race between the United States and France. Um, in which, uh, of course, a lot has been written already about um, the you know, ex- expatriate African Americans who moved to Paris to in search of a less mm-hmm. discriminatory lifestyle, and uh, that's fairly well mapped terrain. But I was interested in the converse of that, which is primarily French intellectuals uh, coming to the U.S. after the Second World War, and I'm thinking specifically here of people like Simone de Beauvoir mm-hmm. and Sartre um, and others who came and wrote books about America in which uh, Jim Crow features much more visibly than it does in American uh, studies of America at that time, or at least they were, if not taking the photographs, they were writing about the effects of these signs. So just, and, and this came out of the research I was doing uh, on, on the signage. Uh, one uh, one piece of information that was interesting to me is that one of the early books, it's Stetson Kennedy's uh, Jim Crow Guide to the USA, which he tried heroically to publish in the U.S. in the late 1940s, shortly after the war, was turned down by, I think he told me, a dozen publishers and was finally published in French translation in a series uh, edited by Jean-Paul Sartre in uh, Les Temps Modernes. Um, uh, uh, and in you know, so in which these white and colored signs were somehow being translated into a French intellectual context. And I found it very interesting in a kind of counterpart um, move at the same time that Simone de Beauvoir's writing of the second sex and about the second sex specifically cites the effect of racial segregation during her visit to the U.S. Um, in the in the late 1940s, seeing that signage really in a kind of reversal of what we normally think of about how gender reinforced gender division reinforced the racial division, seeing the racial division really inspired her in many ways to see women as the second sex in a comparable position to the second race. So I was very interested in that, those acts of translation back and forth. But I really am a literary critic, and um, I find that I'm being pulled back uh, to my, my uh, original field, which is British modernism, uh, specifically my, my, my first book was on Virginia Woolf, and I find myself being lured back to questions of uh, modernist, I, I'm interested now in questions of modernist memoirs and autobiographies, and that may preempt this other project. Yeah. Well, I would just warn you against writing a footnote that turns into an article that <laughs> yeah, turns into a, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're, that's 10 years right there. Right. You're just done. Exactly. Um, and that's happened to me so many times. Somebody really should write an article about that. That's right. I don't know what it is. Uh, you know, we were talking in the pre-interview about how strange academics really are. I mean, I always say that academics are different than other people in the sense they can sit longer in one place. 
than other people. I, I think that's right. probably true. But anyway, Elizabeth Abel, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. The book is uh, Signs of the Times, The Visual Politics of Jim Crow. Elizabeth, thanks again. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Okay, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Elizabeth Abel about her book, Signs of the Times, The Visual Politics of Jim Crow. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.